0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman-Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity.
1: Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy... Tooth craft sanity, craft sanity, art and craft creativity, interviews of people who make they are here to help keep you sane. Craft sanity, craft sanity, craft sanity. This is
0: episode two hundred and sixteen, featuring Mark Newport. Mark is the artist in residence and head of the fiber department at Cranbrook Academy of Art. This is a premier art school here in Michigan. And as someone who kind of stalks that website every you know every six months or so and thinks, "Hmm, wouldn't it be cool to get a fiber art degree?" I, this was really fun for me to do this interview. And during this extended episode of the podcast, we talk about Mark's work and how he kind of started out with art school and his progression, uh, establishing himself as a working artist, and uh, now that combination of working artist and educator. So as some of you may recall, he has done uh, a variety of really interesting work, and he has some of his more notable work that you might have heard about. Uh, He did a series of embroidered comic book covers. He also did embellishments on trading cards sports trading cards uh, and then he got a ton of publicity and i remember hearing all about this when he was doing the knitted superhero costumes uh, i'll put links to his website at craftsanity.com so you can kind of check out all of his work we also are going to talk about his current work which is kind of investigating mending techniques he has work that he's been showing that will actually be showing here in michigan very soon, so at, a, at Art Prize. So grab a project, maybe grab some mending. I don't know. Hopefully, you'll get inspired. Uh, grab something and settle in for a conversation with Mark Newport. Mark, I just want to tell you, like, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show. I've been a longtime fan of your work, and I'm really thrilled to get a chance to talk to you about it today. And I think before we dive in, what would be really great to kind of make sure all the listeners are up to speed, if you could talk a little bit about um, what you do now professionally, because you're, you're working over at Cranbrook, which um, a lot of people in the art world know, Cranbrook has a fine reputation. And um, it's really, uh, I've heard wonderful things about the art program. And I'm not going to lie, about every six months, I look at the website and I look at the application <laughs> like I, I review all the materials and I think hmm and I've been doing this for about 20 years now <laughs> so <laughs> 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 but it's part of like every six months I look and I'm like, oh you know it would be so cool so um, but yeah I've so far I've stuck with journalism as and and I'm a weekend artist uh, but but yeah so anyway, if you could talk a little bit about what you do and um, and then we'll kind of retrace your creative history from there.
1: My professional life. Um, in addition to being an artist, is to be a a college-level educator. Uh, And so I'm currently at Cranbrook Academy of Art, which is a graduate-only program, a two-year-long program for people that want to pursue art at a higher level after their undergraduate degree is finished, sometimes several years after their undergraduate degree (laughs) is finished, (laughs) Uh, some of them even like 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not that I'm selling right now. Yeah,
0: you have to put me in contact <laughs> with your financial aid uh, folks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, They're they're very good. They're very helpful. Yeah, um, I'm sure they are. <laughs> so I've been here um, 11 years, and I, each year I mentor about 15 graduate level students uh, through their first and second year, and we focus on their studio work, and it's pretty amazing kind of place. Before that, I taught at Arizona State University and at Western Washington University and part-time at a bunch of other small art schools. So all in all, I've been teaching for about 25 years. That's
0: awesome. I, I have a question about – I teach journalism, and I noticed that cell phones – I've been teaching at my current post for the last seven years, and I've noticed cell phones come out quite a bit, and it's like the battle for attention. You know, you battle the cell phone a little bit. But I'm thinking art students – probably don't do that as much, or are they Instagramming and Snapchatting while they're painting and sewing and sewing on sequins and all that? I mean, is it... Are you seeing that too,
1: or is this Oh, just... yeah. Well, what I see them do a lot of times in the studio is working on their computers, and I like to believe they're ordering lots and lots of materials. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some of them are editing videos, so that's, you know, that's a different thing altogether, or doing sound projects and stuff like that. Um, and the computer does a lot of work. The the time it gets me and I get confused uh, is during our critiques and we're talking about students' work. And for the longest time, cell phones weren't really part of that. And then all of a sudden, a few years ago, somebody would get it out every now and again. And she was a very regular internet user. And at first, I thought she was, you know, answering text messages or something. And I almost said something. And then I realized she was looking stuff up. You know, somebody else had said something and she she wanted to check on it or she thought of something. And and now most of the students at one point or another do this where like somebody some artist has been mentioned. They don't know who it is, so they type it in and look it up or they're trying to mention an artist and they type it in and look it up right? just to make
0: sure you're saying the right name and you know what you're talking about obviously this isn't part of your your personal creative history it's not part of mine either Um, i didn't grow up with instagram and um the ability to share things in the moment but um, for artists for young artists that you're working with do you see that as becoming a wonderful promotional tool for their work just to kind of build an audience that i mean just gives people access to the world and they you know didn't have that before if you're an art student coming up through the ranks you had to get shows and you had to get your work out there Um, Is this helping your students to have that Instagram tool right on their phone?
1: To some degree. I think it helps them promote themselves so they can get the shows and get known. And um, it certainly seems like their web presence helps them get uh, connections to journalists for interviews as well as curators for shows. There are still... And I don't know if this is just because I'm fiber and so I'm teaching in a craft discipline where people are more about hands-on making than other things, but um, there's still a bunch of them that Either they haven't gotten the web presence developed or they're not sure they want to use the social media or whatever it is. And so, you know, that's still something that everybody asks questions about.
0: Well, do you see a downside to it where, I mean, obviously it takes gobs of time. They can get sucked in and realize, like, you've been online for two or three hours and you're like, wow, how did that happen? Um, But one of the things that's different is that when you're immediately showing your work to the world, there's no um, – it's different the, – the excitement level seems like it would be different than if someone goes to your opening, you know, and they might have saw a postcard or a poster or just a hint of what you were doing. Uh, or maybe even your studio mates would, like, people see you going into a room and, like, spending hours of time and then you come out. And people might not know exactly what you're doing, but when people are, like, live streaming, like, hey, here's a here's a time lapse or here's this. And, it, and some of the art is, you know, people can see it and while that's intriguing and really cool – Um, do you, do you find that sometimes artists feel like the big reveal isn't as big when people already know what they're doing?
1: I haven't really run into that. I I mean, I don't have any stories of people feeling that like that's happened. I do think the, it's sort of on the other side of that, where I think there's problems, which is the screen is not the same. And that little thing you're looking at, that little image or video is not the real thing. It's not what happens in the gallery or in the the perfect presentation. right? And even just as somebody studying art and wanting to see other artists work, you don't really know the the physical sort of grunginess of something or the slickness of it until you get in front of it. And so I feel like the, the screen is really great for seeing certain parts of things, but it's very limiting in a lot of ways.
0: Do you find that, do you use social media to promote your own work?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I use Instagram and I use use Facebook uh, and I have a website. And I think it's just a part of making yourself accessible in the world right now.
0: And do you you enjoy it? Do you like being out there and having those? (laughs) You can be Uh, honest here because, I mean, there are aspects of it. Like, I absolutely hate Facebook. Um, I use it because I feel like I have to. Um, you know, as part of my fiber business, and um, I sell weaving looms, and I want to promote stuff I'm making, but I don't enjoy that part. I do like Instagram. I don't know, what do you like to use and maybe not like to use?
1: I like Instagram. And I I say that decidedly as a picture person. So you know, I get to look at a bunch of pictures. And there's, there's not a lot of ranting and raving or other kinds of things, which is, so what I find on Facebook now, and <laughs> right. I got into both of them as advertisement, basically. So I have this weird collision on Facebook of this notion of friends, and then what I'm trying to do, which is just connect with people. <laughs> about the work. Right. And and so, you know, family members put up pictures of you when you were 20 and you're not 20 anymore (laughs) and things like that. And it's like, okay, that wasn't really what I was after, but you know, okay, I'll survive. (laughs) Um, So I just feel like, you know, Instagram is a a slightly different way of doing things. Um, In the end, I'm trying to monitor my use of social media, but I'm not like minimizing it very well so far
0: (laughs) when you started like as a kid did you aspire to be um, an artist or what what did you want to be when you were a kid and what got you into this uh
1: my mom will tell you there wasn't a time i wasn't making things and i can remember very young birthdays like five or so when i was being given paint by number kits or books about how to draw Uh, so as far as i remember i always made stuff wanting to be an artist Came later because I, you know, nobody really talks about that as a, a career path. <laughs> um, no, it's funny how we don't really mean. promote
0: that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were there were the the very romantic notions that I I definitely spun around in my head of you know an attic someplace with with easels and and not much light and and probably rheumatic fever or something like that. <laughs> um, You know, and, and, you know, on a more sort of just accessible side, um, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother was a first grade school teacher when I was a kid. And she, I would go visit her um, in the summers for a couple of weeks, usually a week or two each summer. And um, she was a big believer in keeping people active so they didn't, you know, destroy her house and, and all that. And, <laughs> she was a
0: smart and so
1: grandmother, yes. <laughs> she was, yeah. Um, and sometimes that meant she played badminton with me and my brother or played baseball in the front oh, yard. that's wonderful. And sometimes it meant that, you know, she read stories to us or we got out the blocks or the Play-Doh, but it also meant that she bought me my first paint kit, painting kit and she bought me kits on how to embroider and cross stitch and macaroni art and all sorts of stuff uh, and taught me how to knit. Uh, And so a lot of that sort of disappeared because at my family home, we didn't have access to a lot of that. But my my mom pretty regularly bought me pads of drawing paper and I had pencils around and markers and stuff. And so, you know, I I drew most of the time. And so that, that got me up to high school where I took art class and said, instead of taking Spanish, and the guidance counselor told me when I dropped Spanish that I would never get into college. Oh, uh, no. That's so scary. Yeah. That, <laughs> oh well, yeah. It was horrifying in ninth grade to be told, you know, you're killing your future by going into art. So, <laughs>
0: immediately after you dropped Spanish, you were doomed that she was telling you, basically. Oh, yeah. It's like instant, oh, yeah. instant yeah. you know, you're going to never get into, wow. So then what did you do?
1: Well, I mean, at that point, the career path had been Ivy League College because I grew up in Western Massachusetts and so prep school and all that stuff. But um, I just I dropped the the Spanish class and I took an extra art class and I just followed my my intuition and my desire and um, and eventually applied to art school after high school. I was really fortunate that the the teacher in high school, there are actually two of them. Um, one was a visiting artist for a year, and he had been in my high school when he was a high schooler and then was out in the world um, working administration at different art schools. And in between those jobs, he came back and, and hung out in the art room. I don't know if he got paid or how that worked or what was going on, actually, but he, he would just talk to us and, and give us assignments. And the art teacher would give us assignments. And the art teacher was this, at the time, seemed like this amazingly old guy who was an abstract expressionist painter back in the day and had taught there forever. <laughs> and it was kind of a goofy character. But, um, you know, he. so the two of them just sort of pushed a studio practice without me actually knowing that's what it was. You came in and you'd you drew or you worked with clay or you did this for the 45 minutes of each period. And then you came back the next day and you did it again. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, weird sort of, um, fill in the forms or anything like that. It was just, here's the paper, here's the stuff go. Um, which paid off well in some ways, there wasn't a lot of criticism or development or context at the time. And maybe that's just high school, but, I don't think that's the case. I think it was just his weird persona. (laughs) Well,
0: it's probably easier Um, if you just tell people, like, hey, go to it. Um, You know, (laughs) you don't have to do a lot of lesson planning, you know, in that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He did do one class. He did this senior level comparative arts class, he called it. And um, it was a lecture class, but he would just show the students who had hung around the most in the art room and decided they wanted to take this class. So it was like 10 of us at the most. Um, he, he would show us slides. It was the first time I ever sat in a slide lecture in my whole life. And I was, you know, 17, 18. And he would show us Egyptian art one week and talk about Egyptian art. And then he would show us uh, Marcel Duchamp's urinal and talk about that. And so he wouldn't let us take place. notes. Yeah, it was yeah. Just all over the place. He, he wouldn't let us take notes. He just wanted us to experience it. Interesting. And then we, because it was school, high school, you had to take a test eventually. Right. So um, I think once a quarter, we got handed a blue book, and he would show us two slides. And this is where the comparative part came in. And, and they, were, they were two slides we'd seen, but they were not necessarily connected by anything. I think one of them, we looked at an a Egyptian hieroglyph and Duchamp's bicycle wheel on a stool. And he was like, okay, tell me. Why are these or aren't these art? And what's, what's significant or cool about these things? And we just had to write for 45 minutes or until we ran out and then go on about our way.
0: I would have loved that class.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing class. He, one day he invited the um, advanced placement European history class in. So I was a nerd, but these guys were like, the real nerds, you know, they, they were already planning their college future with their AP classes. I was just, you know, not taking Spanish. You're dropping stuff.
0: Spanish, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know, a lot of them were my friends. And so he let me stay in the room, and I sat back away from the group, and they were all around the main table. And his lecture was about Dadaism. And, <laughs> um, instead of doing a lecture, which he sort of pretended he was doing at the beginning, he he then eventually walked out of the room for a minute and came back with his, his Oxford shirt off and just a T-shirt on, and he started yelling things in, in some European language, French maybe, and he was pulling kids off their chairs, which now would get you fired. Right, right. But, <laughs> you're allowed
0: to touch people, and you can't yell at them either, really. Um, <laughs> exactly.
1: But he was completely making up a Dada performance right there in the moment.
0: Oh, my word.
1: And it was so hysterical and so amazing because – at that moment, it was like, oh, art's provocative. It's not just pictures and, and you know, weird imaginings. Right. It's also this other thing. It pokes and pushes. And so there's a lot that happened in that year that was so sort of quiet and subtle in a way and so helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, <and laughs> um, it's,
0: it sounds yeah. too like, I mean, in all these years later, you remember that. And I think that's like the most effective because I think, you know, I know when I'm teaching, I often think about like, oh, well, what are the students going to remember? Like after the semester's over with, like, and I try to, I try to make sure that I'm trying to convey some information that's going to stick. And sometimes you have to go outside the box. I've never pushed a student off their chair. Um, and I'm not I'm not going to try it because uh, I know what would happen. But um, but yeah, that's yeah. really that's really interesting too. That all these years later you're still remembering. So it sounds like you had some really strong influences early in your art path to kind of yeah, reinforce yeah. Um, what you are interested in.
1: Yeah, and, and nobody that. I mean, well, he would be the closest to, of a person who actually was in the art world and, and dealt with it. Everybody else was people that were just like, oh, he's creative. He's interested in this. Go with it.
0: Right, right.
1: And that was helpful. There. I also, um, between my junior and senior year of high school, I was selected to be a foreign exchange student to Brazil. And so I was there for three months. And it turned out the family that I lived with collected paintings, not like, crazily, like other people, but, you know, they had some paintings, and they knew artists, and um, that was also, while slightly confusing, because i didn't speak Portuguese. Uh, um, And certainly not taking Spanish didn't help.
0: (laughs) Right. It came back to haunt you. Yeah, Um. (laughs)
1: Um, But, you know, I got to meet artists and and they were very curious about what I was doing when I would draw and and would talk to me about it and and not critique, but they, they looked at things in a way that my family didn't really pay attention to.
0: It sounds like you decided in high school right about the time you dropped Spanish that art was what you wanted to pursue or am I jumping the gun here?
1: Oh no, that would, yeah, it was pretty solid. I didn't know uh, in ninth grade that that meant there were art schools to go to and stuff. Um, but I knew college was in my future. And, um, that's, I guess that sophomore year with that visiting artist, I knew about a couple of other art schools, a couple of art schools in the world. Um, one of which I ended up at, which was the Kansas city art Institute Uh, And that's where I did my undergraduate work. Um, I went there telling my mom I would take design so that I could get a job. Uh, and, (laughs) (laughs) and, And luckily there's a whole foundations year at the beginning, so I went through all the basic drawing and color and 3D and all that sort of stuff. And then by the time I had to declare a major for my sophomore year, I went into painting. Not necessarily thinking about design or a career choice, but just because painting is where, you know, there was cool stuff going on. And I thought that's what I would do. Uh, luckily, the art school had a curriculum and it made me take electives. And about midway through my junior year, actually not even midway, the beginning of my junior year, I was feeling like something wasn't quite right. And I was taking an elective in the fiber department. And I was learning to dye cloth and do boutique and weave and realized that that way of working made more sense to me. Uh, and I really couldn't articulate it any clearer than that at the time. It just felt right. But what I realized much later was that the, the incremental building that happens when you weave and the the way dye moves right into the fiber was was something that helped me think and understand and experience my work in a way that painting just didn't do so you know i transferred to fiber and finished out uh as a fiber major but really had this kind of interdisciplinary fiber drawing painting kind of thing going on and then took a few years off and worked in the world to see if I was really going to stick with this or not. Um, so
0: what did you do during those three years?
1: <laughs> I moved, my wife and I moved to uh, Hartford, Connecticut, which is sort of close to where I grew up in Western Massachusetts, but it was meant to be an adventure and get out of Kansas city. And I worked in an art supply store for a while And I worked at a museum store for a while, selling art books and buying way too many art books with my not good salary. (laughs) Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But luckily, I mean, the art art museum job was one of the best jobs I'd had at that point because I got a a full-on hour each day for lunch and I could walk through the galleries after I ate and see art in real life. And of course there were other art people there and the curators were curious about me and uh, actually had me, the museum had a basket collection. And so one of the curators had me do demonstrations because she knew I knew how to weave. Nice. And so that was interesting. And then of course, you know, they had artists coming through. There was a, uh, it was a comprehensive museum, but there was a, a contemporary program. And so I met, uh, Howardina Pindell, who's uh, just had a big show in Chicago recently, and um, who else? The Starn Twins did a show, and some architectural experimental people did shows, so there was a lot of interesting things that were happening, and that really, that and um, the fact that I like school a whole lot better than I like quote unquote, the real world, um, just meant that, you know, three <laughs> years was about as long as I could handle being out of school. <laughs> um, and so then moved to Chicago to go to grad school at the school, of the art Institute of Chicago.
0: And did you encounter any, when, cause you said originally you told your mom that you were going to, um, study design. So when you,
1: yeah.
0: it, when it kind of leaked out that you were actually majoring in fiber, how did that go over? I mean, was there immediate support or was it, did it take some convincing that this was a a, a good move?
1: Um, <laughs> well, okay. So there was a little concern, but my mother pretty much, well, there are two things. One is she kind of just trusted me to choose what I wanted to do and knew that I would make the best or live with the consequences. Um, she she gave me a lot of freedom, uh, as evidenced by sending her kid off to Kansas City from Pittsfield, Massachusetts, <laughs> on an airplane uh, without ever having seen Kansas City. <laughs> right.
0: So she had <laughs> like, some... Here's the
1: money. Here's <laughs> money for the taxi. Get yourself from the airport to the school. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it sounds like it worked I, I, out, you know, it all worked out. It but, did,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she she just kind of let me take care of the school thing and knew that I would perform. The other thing is, is a year after I started school, she went back to college. She had um, finished her undergraduate degree when I was a teenager and wanted to get a graduate degree in business administration. So uh, after my brother graduated high school, she sold the family house and moved to North Carolina and went to graduate school. (laughs) So she was a little busy uh, (laughs) to worry about the nuances of my particular uh, educational (laughs) choice.
0: Well, it's funny because I just asked my daughter the other day. My oldest is 14, and she's likely to go into illustration, and um, she draws Uh every day. And I said – and my husband kind of jokingly said, or half jokingly said, well, you know, you could go to art school with Abby. <laughs> and, and I so I, we we're driving in the car, and I look, you know, she has, of course, his headphones on. So I asked her to take her headphones off. I said, how would you feel about being in art school with me? And she's like, that's fine. And then she put her headphones back on. <laughs> and just kept, and I was, I was like, oh, I was thinking there'd be more of an extreme reaction, like, no, please don't. Um, But we collaborate on projects, so I think she's used to kind of working with me, but I I thought that was really hilarious. I'm like, something tells me her tune will change uh, when she's 18, you know? (laughs) know.
1: When she's basically tearing the house apart to get out of it. (laughs) Right, and then I
0: follow her to a campus. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm going to try really hard not to do that to my kid. But but yeah, so your mom was pursuing her own goals while you were up. Getting her master's
1: in business administration, and yeah, so... And that's not to say that she wasn't paying attention because my appendix ruptured in the middle of undergrad school. (laughs) So she was definitely, she came out and checked on me and stuff. But she she was doing her thing and she trusted me to do my thing. Certainly when she put me on the plane, when I was heading off in September or August, whatever it was to go to college, she said, okay, here's some lunch. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Now, what are you going to do when you get done with this degree? I was like, I don't know, mom. I will figure it out. I'm not worried about that. I'll get a job waiting tables or doing whatever, and I will do my work. And, uh, you know, 18, full of, full of all sorts of conquer the world stuff. Right. Uh, and then uh, fast forward four years. She's out to Kansas City because I'm graduating. <laughs> uh, she takes me out to lunch. I am now 22. <laughs> so what are you going to do with this degree, Mark? I don't know, Mom. I'm just going to make my work and everything's going to be all right. I'll get a job waiting tables or doing whatever. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, she was concerned. but.
0: <laughs> did you um, meet your wife in college or when did you meet your yeah. wife? Okay, so you met yeah, in an undergrad. We,
1: yeah, we met in undergrad and got married before my senior year. Um, Oh, so you got married. Yeah, I
0: got married when I was 21, about a a month after I graduated. So you got married. Yeah, right in the thick of it. Okay.
1: So yeah, I was 21 when we got married and she was 20. And yeah, everybody was flipped out.
0: <laughs> yeah, people get, people get really crazy. They're like, "That's so young." People would come up to me and be like, "Why would you want to get married now?" Like other other peers, you know, would be like, "You're so young. You have your whole life ahead of you." And I'm like, "Well, if you meet the right person, why not share your life with that person?"
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah. I
0: was like, "Yeah." I, I just know.
1: look at it as you know, it seemed right at the time, and you're 21. Like, what the heck do you know? Well, that's <laughs> and, the thing. And I, then yeah. after that, it's just does it work out?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thankfully, yeah, thankfully it worked out. So, how long have you been married
1: now? We celebrated our 33rd wedding anniversary.
0: Congratulations. And is your wife an artist as well?
1: She designs and maintains gardens, uh, oh, vegetable nice. and flower gardens and things like that. Oh, yeah.
0: fun. So, you guys are both doing yeah. the design and artistic things, it sounds like. Um, yeah. Yeah. And do yeah. You, you have children as well?
1: We do. We have a 24-year-old daughter who lives in Portland, Oregon uh, with her two dogs and her boyfriend, and we have a 17-year-old son who just finished high school.
0: Are they an art artist as well? Uh, or? Not at all. No, they're like, this is <laughs> not.
1: Not at all. <laughs> 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 they, um, my daughter, we had been here at Cranbrook about two years, and we were at a dinner party with three of my colleagues and their families, and the... The colleague that runs painting, who is um, this crazy, intense lady from New York, just (laughs) amazingly driven. Still got the New York accent. Still just like, you know, it vibrates every time you see her. She said something to my daughter about. So, are you gonna you gonna go into art like your your family did? And, and, like, the immediate context of the conversation just before that was the three of us basically patting ourselves on the back going, yeah, we've got good jobs, we're doing the art thing, we got families, everything's cool, we really succeeded. And so my <laughs> colleagues ask my daughter, my daughter looks at her with no irony or sarcasm and says, no, art's a bad career choice. uh and and we actually had to look around and be like, she's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So it, changed, <laughs>
0: it shifted the tone of the conversation slightly, it sounds like. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. There was definitely, like, breaks put on and, and crashing noises and stuff. <laughs> um, oh, but well, kids was, are
0: honest. They say what they think, you know. And
1: Oh, heck, yeah. Yeah. The funny thing is, is in high school, she had to take some kind of art, collective throughout high school, and the choices were choir, theater, and visual art. And (laughs) she's extremely introverted and reserved, so choir and theater were just not going to happen because you had to be in front of people. So I just ribbed her the whole time. I was like, so visual art, you are my kid. Uh Uh-huh. 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 See, you like it.
0: (laughs) Did you buy her oh, a loom her. as a school supply, oh. buy her a loom?
1: <laughs> all, all sorts of stuff. you know. And even now at 24, I'll be like, you took visual art in high school? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> She's like, Dad. It was the other choices that pushed me into it. <laughs>
0: it is funny to watch your kids and try not to go too crazy if they show even the slightest bit of interest in anything fiber. <laughs> oh,
1: entirely. <laughs> now, when when my daughter was in preschool, she was at a Montessori school, and... So it was all Montessori stuff during the school year. Then during the summer, they would do like these two week summer camp things for the kids, and they opened up extra spaces. Um, that they didn't use during the school year because you would have had to go outside and it would be too cold and nasty. And there was this room out next to the goat pen. Yeah, there was a goat pen. That's awesome. <laughs> of course, it was Washington. Um, and they had these little looms that were like rigid head looms, but they had cranks on the side of them to advance the sheds. That oh, nice. Made them perfect for like six-year-olds. Right. And one day she walked home, she you know, gets in the car and hands me this piece of cloth she wove and said, look, Dad. I learned to make cloth. It's like <laughs> That's weaving. It's what I teach. What is going on? <laughs> do you want a loom, Chloe? I can take you to school. We can put you on a, oh, she's just like, dad, I'm going to do something else tomorrow. I don't <laughs> know. Like, right.
0: Oh. We can circle back to Chicago because uh, I kind of interrupted yeah. the whole thing. Um, so you and your wife were moved to Chicago then. Mm-hmm. And um, so you decided, okay, I've had enough of the real world. I'm going back to school. And yep. what was your goal at that point? Were you looking to teach or just do more studio um, work or what was your goal?
1: Yeah. In keeping with the romantic th- threads running through my head, uh, no pun intended, um, I went to graduate school so that I could go back to school um, and work on my studio work. I, I did manage to keep a small studio practice going while I was um, working those three years, but... Really, it was like an hour or two at night, each weeknight, and some time on the weekends because I was working a full-time job. Yeah. And I, you know, all those other cool artists around, like, well, that's what I want to do. I don't want to keep doing this. Um, And so uh, I got to Chicago and it was really just like heaven on earth, frustrating, challenging heaven on earth, but two years of studio time and a few art history classes and a little bit of teaching, but mostly studio time. And it was great. Uh, And Chicago was a great city. It still is. I love, I love Chicago with all my heart. Um, So yeah, I, I mean, I did a little teaching Um, mostly I got, I ended up teaching being a teaching assistant because I was one of the only ones in my group that really had really solid weaving experience from my undergrad and they had a new weaving person teaching my second semester of school and she asked for an assistant and they picked me to be the assistant because I had woven a bunch of tapestry, but I also woven ecot and, um, and other just basic pattern stuff. So, uh, well, I didn't have any teaching experience to speak of and couldn't have organized the class for anything. Everything that she taught them, I was able to help out with and just jump in and help with demos and stuff. And mm-hmm. even, um, I think the last project was a Warp ECOP project. And I basically taught that, that in the tapestry. Nice. So. You know, I got a little taste of teaching and I thought, well, maybe I'll apply for teaching jobs. But I wasn't, again, I wasn't really concerned about it. And I got through with my two years in Chicago and stayed another three years because there was really nowhere to go. You know, I hadn't left family behind to go someplace. So my wife and I loved Chicago and we just stayed there. I worked um, installing shows in museums and working in galleries. I worked for a bunch of artists at different times did apply for teaching jobs as that went along, and nothing really came up because I was young and didn't really know anything. <laughs> uh, I mean, I look back at it now, I was like, why does anybody get hired when they're 28? They don't know anything <laughs> uh, to teach, you know? <laughs> but, but I did finally get asked by one of my mentors, to. she was going on sabbatical, to teach the weaving one class. Uh, so that third year, I was teaching one class for the whole year, uh, on beginning weaving. And after that, things just snowballed. Um, I got offered a one year position in Kansas city. So I went back to where I had studied and taught there for two years, one full-time and one part-time in the fiber department. And then I got an offer to be the Fiber department at Western Washington University, which is in Bellingham, Washington, north of Seattle, and turned that into a full time job and was for five years altogether. And taught all of fiber undergraduate level there, plus some beginning like 2D and 3D design stuff and some advanced uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts seminar stuff. Nice. Yeah, so you know, um, Chicago set me up really well. Kansas City set me up even better because I learned all the technical stuff that I knew in Kansas City. It was a really fantastic program, and that's probably why I got into grad school because I didn't have the best work, but I had studied with people that knew the people in Chicago and. They could say, you know, well, he works hard and things look like crap right now, but they'll get better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what were you making when you were applying for for graduate school? What was what? Were, what did your work look like? Like what were you making? And yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're successful now, so it's it's okay. It's okay to share this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's, well, it can get edited out or it can stay in because nobody can find a visual record of this. <laughs>
0: that, that's the thing too. There was no Instagram and all that. Exactly. So yeah, you, can, you don't have to go back and delete stuff. It's just not even. Available. Yeah.
1: So when I first got out of undergrad, I was weaving tapestries that were combining images from sports magazines and girly magazines. So like boxers and pinups and that kind of thing into these little tapestries that that were then in boxes. And those were not the things that were crap. Those were actually kind of cool and the beginning of everything for my work because they they got into all the gender stuff.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah. So that was sort of the foundation of everything. But as I was moving away from that time in school, I also sort of started thinking, well, I want to make the figures 3D. I want to do this and do that. And so I learned... Some half hitch knotting techniques that is basically macrame, okay. but yeah. don't think owls and plant holders think really dense intertwined pieces that were really solid, but sort of circular cores going up through like a coiled basket. And, um, and they were figurative and sort of abstract and moderate in scale and made out of threads that I dyed and made out of waxed linen thread and different things like that. And those were the those were the things that were crap. <laughs> but
0: looking back, you're not. Uh, really... but, yeah, but it sounds like it all had merit because it was leading you to what was going to happen next. Just everything. I mean.
1: Yeah, I think what it showed the people in the grad school applications because it was them that and the tapestries and the applications that is that I could develop ideas and work through them and keep asking questions
0: because some people get they figure out one thing they're really successful at it and or it looks like it's really going somewhere and then they don't deviate from that ever because they're like okay i don't want to screw this up you know but 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 i think growth stops at some point pretty early on if you never try something that you're like i don't even know if this is good like i don't even know i'm just going to try it
1: yeah
0: and i think that's when it really can i mean even if you abandon it and you're like yeah that was terrible Never going to do that again. <laughs> you still learn something from it, so.
1: No, I think that's exactly it. They could see that I thought and asked questions and analyzed the work, and maybe I went off the trail, but I, you know that, that would change, and that that meant that that, along with reasonably good references, got me into art school. <laughs> um, that, and let's let's admit it, um, before we get into the fiber discussion. There's not all that many. Men in fiber, particularly straight ones. So <laughs> like, uh,
0: you're the married guy, uh, the token not, married guy. Uh, yeah, um, it's yeah, not that I'm a minority, like, but you know. <laughs> yeah, you no, know, I no, I can tell. Yeah, because people people would make some assumptions. And did you were there were there a lot of men in your program even in fiber? like no, I mean, were no. you like the only guy? You were like the token man in all these classes.
1: In Kansas City, there were 25-ish fiber majors over three years, and I was one of four at the height when I left. In Chicago, there there were no men when I got there. I was the only guy in my first year in fiber, and then there was one other guy who joined in the second year that I was there. So, yeah, pretty slim, and every – like in teaching – um, with undergrads, it was a little different because a lot of times I was teaching classes that they sort of had to take, like, you know, take a fiber one class. Right. So I would get a the few. Electives. yeah. Yeah. But still, it, it's mostly women. And, and my department now, we, we hit a high a couple of years ago. We had four Men in the department <laughs> for for people that describe themselves as male. It was like, whoa, look at that! Yes, <laughs> that you guys got to
0: go into the office and like marker the chart that shows the growth in the department in the male population. <laughs> like we've reached the pinnacle. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was literally like, look at that. Now it's it's not eighty twenty. It 75 25 yeah (laughs) on the percentage side of things like yep so you know it's just one of those things that i think all that came together and so chicago was was a really great place to be and and worked out well
0: so when you got there um i know at one point and i don't know at what point of your career but you were doing some embroidery of comic book pages and making quilts is that was was that your graduate work
1: no um that's Uh that started late 1990s. I graduated in 92, and I was making abstract sculptural forms that were very uh, informed by male and female genital forms and internal body organs and that kind of thing. And I made those. Those were my graduate work, and then or my graduate show work, and then for about three or four years after that. Uh, and they were the first things that that got shown. Um, and
0: after or after you had your um, MFA, did, were you selling these pieces to galleries and collections, or
1: a few got sold? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I had some collectors in the Midwest mostly um, who bought those pieces, and galleries in the Midwest that showed them. And yeah, there was some some immediate um, sort of bits of attention. And I had set a goal for myself after school got out where what I wanted to have happen was to have my work in three shows a year. Um, And that happened for the most part, except for uh, one or two years in that first group of years, usually years when I moved and stuff.
0: Right, where you didn't know the people. Yeah, you had to.
1: Yeah, I got disconnected. And so things started well as far as i was concerned at the beginning and um and then that change to the embroidered work and the the hero work started really in 1995 uh with a series of trading cards that i transformed by sewing beads onto them so i essentially um redressed uh football players uh, images <laughs> of football players it sounds so fun actually evening <laughs> gowns it was it was <laughs> it was kind of crazy it, Like, I love being in the studio. It's always great to be in the studio, even on the bad days. Right. Uh, And even when the work is hard and painful and and all that, and you're not feeling well. But that was maybe the only time I sat in the studio and every now and again, I'd look down and just start giggling to myself. (laughs) Like, this can't possibly be right. There's no way this can be right. (laughs) Did
0: that work? How did the work go over?
1: Uh, that work actually did pretty well, and um, there was a gallery in Chicago that I had shown some of the sculptural work with, but it didn't. It was just like one show, uh, and I went back up to Chicago to visit him while I was in Kansas City, and I showed him the new work. And at first, he was just like, "I don't know, I don't know. I <laughs> He's just like, "What happened to know. you, man?
0: What happened?" Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then I was I was home for about a week, and I got a call from him, and he said, "I know now." That was so weird. I know. <laughs> 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 and so I had my, my first real solo show with a gallery that was um, representing me in Chicago, uh, mid-90s. I must have been 96 or 97.
0: And it was and- filled with football cards?
1: Yeah, and they, they weren't framed or anything. It was just a shelf going around this little room with these three-and-a-half-inch-tall football cards and other types of trading cards going around the room.
0: <laughs> and so how much would one of those go for, like, back in the day? Uh, at, like,
1: yeah, one, at
0: first... They had, they had to have a certain player um, wearing an evening yeah, gown made out of sequins.
1: Yeah, at first they went for 100 bucks, which meant I was basically the impulse buy at the art fair.
0: Right.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, how and long they did eventually that take? got up to... Oh, they they took like a day to to work on. Yeah, I was gonna say um, that a
0: hundred bucks seems kind of cheap, honestly, for the yeah, it stitching. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, the the problem is when you have to convince the gallery dealer that right. this is our
0: right. No, I mean it's not <laughs> what they see all the time, and so then they went from yeah. 100, they started a hundred, and then what would they go for as time went on?
1: At the end, they got up to three hundred to five hundred, um, which is a nice they, chunk of I, change. Yeah, yeah, and I only really worked on them for a couple of years. Um, because I ultimately do not, well, I I will say that I've only had one idea my whole artistic career, but it looks different (laughs) every few years, um, is probably the best way to put it. So, you know, I I had beaded, I must've done a couple hundred trading cards by the end of it. And that seemed like enough.
0: (laughs) Did any of the sports journalists pick up on this? Like, did any did you get like Sports Illustrated to do a story about you or anything? No. Because I wonder no, how the athletes would, have, would cool. have felt if you got I like wondered about that. someone to walk <laughs> in and they like, and they see themselves wearing a dress on their card. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> it wasn't like, a, it followed the, the image of the form. Oh, but, you okay. Know, okay. You it was had just beads beaded. On okay. there, So okay. instead of being so hyper macho, you were sort of The same shape, only
0: you had sparkles and spangles.
1: Yeah. 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 So yeah, that never happened. Um much later, when I was doing the embroidered work you asked about, I did, and when I was doing the costumes, when those were sort of overlapping, I did get a letter from DC Comics uh, asking if I would like to purchase regis- um, purchase rights to use the image of their creation Batman in my work. <laughs> <And>
0: <laughs> well, that seems kind of like a tricky, scary letter.
1: Yeah, to Yeah, it was.
0: Yeah, I'd be like, it oh, was... crap. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, it was scary. And I knew the trading cards, I was pretty sure I was safe, that I wasn't in any kind of copyright infringement because I wasn't, it's not like a, they all have an image. I worried more that with them, somebody would take it as libelous, you know, as like. Demeaning them,
0: right? This so might come and I would punch get... you or something, but not right. That you were, yeah, because I mean, if you go to a baseball card show and you try to sell a card that has a bunch of stitch holes in it, people are going to be like, "Whoa, you've just like in that arena, it, they might have thinking they had devalued the cards, which they're like, this right. guy, he's not, you know, yeah, yeah." So,
1: well, and, um, and you you just encapsulated about ten conversations I heard the first time I showed them in a group show. Was oh, people were like these...
0: freaking out about you ruining. Perfectly good. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. literally, like little boys jumping up and down going, Dad, Dad, I want that one, and I want that one, and I want that one. And the dads looking at each other going, Huh? What the? And and one dad saying, I wonder if he still thinks they're worth anything. And the other dad going, well, over here on the thing, it says they're worth $100 (laughs) apiece. Like clearly value systems and expectations and masculinity were all like, jumbled up in these guys heads <laughs> right because if
0: you look at like Beckett monthly like i used to collect baseball cards when i was a kid and i would look up how much everything costs. And it'd be like, this one's worth five cents. And then the next month, that only might only be worth three cents. And I would like price all the stuff. It was ridiculous. So you actually, according to what I know about trading cards, a hundred bucks is a really awesome, <laughs> like that, that's an awesome <laughs> price. So if, if I would have known as a child that stitching on a card would have taken them all to a hundred dollars, I would have been just holed up in my room stitching the entire summer. I've been like, I'm not coming out until they're all covered, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I never, well, I think maybe five of the cards I bought, I paid like 20 bucks for a piece. All the rest of them came straight out of packages or out of auctions, uh, where I, you know, basically said, oh, I'll pay 20 bucks for all 2000 of those cards. Right, right,
0: right. So <laughs> you're no, not, it was completely yeah, so it's like pennies. Stuff. It's like pennies. It's not. Yeah. 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 So people are freaking out at the show and not oh, quite yeah. understanding what you're trying to do.
1: What I liked is they were getting it without discussing it in the way I would have with my colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and that was a real education. The other thing was is, okay, so that's what the guys are doing. The wives are there too, or who I presume are the wives, and they're kind of giggling. <laughs> it's like, okay, I think I know the target I'm shooting at here. <laughs> right and it's it's not as though making the Nick superhero costumes wasn't funny too. it just spread out over, you know, six weeks instead of a day (laughs) to make each one. So
0: So what was next then right after the cards?
1: So from the, the beaded trading cards, I went to the, um, embroidered comic book covers and, um, quilts. I made, uh, six quilts out of comic book pages that I embroidered on.
0: Did you have Uh, to do something to reinforce the pages to get that to, uh, so they they wouldn't fall apart?
1: Yeah, there's this great stuff called Wonder Under, and um, Isn't it great? what I would do, yeah. yeah, with the comic book covers, because those were a series onto themselves, I would just take the pages out and leave the cover uh, and seal it together with the Wonder Under so it was two layers of paper thick, Okay, uh, and that was enough that as long as I was careful I, and used the right kinds of stitches, I wouldn't um, pull big holes in the, the paper, and I could do the embroidery.
0: Did people freak Um, out, like collectors of comic books, be like, oh my gosh, he's ruining the comic (laughs) books. Like, and not understanding, again, what the point of your work was.
1: There was a little of that, but some of the best things were watching people trying to read, not the covers, but the comic book quilts, because there was lots of pages laid out. Yeah. yeah. They would actually look at them trying to see if they could read the story that was still there, but they were always a mishmash of several comics. So. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so you
0: like tricked people. They start to read and they're like, wait a minute, this is very confusing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they would just look at them way longer than anybody ever really looked at an art object.
0: <laughs> a lot of these projects that you're doing, it sounds like they're very... Um, They lend themselves very well to captivating audiences because it's surprising to people. They're not used to seeing things that might be in their life or part of their childhood uh, then put on display but embellished in a way that they probably never thought of themselves.
1: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I mean, on the positive side. On the negative side is there's still lots of people in the world that whether they're purists about art or whether they're comic book fans or whatever it is that I've particularly transgressed upon in their world, they, they have not been shy about letting me know about that sometimes in print.
0: <laughs> After the DC comic thing, when they sent you a letter asking if you would like to purchase the rights, did you decide maybe you would move on from comic? Books, or how did that influence your work?
1: Well, that was a couple of years into knitting the superhero costumes and occasionally embroidering on comic book covers. And I had, at least with the costumes, I had started with um, recreating representations of heroes that you would recognize, like Batman or Spider Man. And then I by the time I got the letter I'd already started making up my own characters, like Splutterman oh, okay. and Argyle Man. So it wasn't a big deal, but it did get me to consult with a copyright attorney about what were my rights and, and how should I deal with this. And so I learned about the the three requirements for copyright your, you know, sort of decisions and, and was told basically that because I'm an artist and because I wasn't damaging their business or saying that I was using their image with their permission mm-hmm. uh, and that I was using it critically, that I was somehow making a comment about it as well as other things, that I was safe. And so then the other advice was just don't answer the letter. Which <laughs> seemed counterintuitive because I felt like, well, shouldn't I defend myself or something? And what the lawyer told me was, is companies like DC have people on retainers. It's they get paid to look for people like me who they might be able to persecute, oh, or yeah. prosecute. I guess that's the right word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a little less menacing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so basically, their letter was like them throwing out a lure
0: to see what if you would you know, take the bait and.
1: It, get yeah. into a fight if yeah. I had written back then they've got to do more work and so then I'm on their radar and they have to chase me down well Obviously, somebody's getting paid over there
0: then too because if there's billable yeah. hours involved so was it in response to the comic book covers or the costumes
1: I never knew exactly which one it was I had definitely covered Batman in both of them <laughs>
0: right so, right it was that the first one it was one equal that
1: opportunity was <laughs> it the
0: first one that you did the knitted costume was it Batman or did you yep. start? yeah okay is he, your, is he your favorite of all the superheroes? He's kind
1: of the go-to, yeah. Yeah. I, okay. um, you know, partly because, well, I mean, the only special things he's got is he was rich and had lots <laughs> of time to to, <laughs> to learn things and, like, and make things and right. buy things. Right. So, um, and then there's the dark side of it that I like, this kind of, he's the most sort of viewable the ones I grew up with that's um the vigilante so imposing your will and whether that's actually good or not so yeah
0: you're replicating superhero costumes in a knitted form that is very stretchy which also means that you know the person doesn't necessarily have to be like super fit for you know a a, a person of any size could put on one of these costumes and you know have their batman outfit on and um and that's kind of interesting commentary as well but so you were really taking this from being the stereotype of this uh, super strong, superhuman man, um, saving the world. And you were... Um, what What were you trying to say about that? And I'm not going to try to interpret it for you. I want to give you a chance to explain your own work.
1: I was continuing explorations into the idea of gender and masculinity in particular and the hero and how that's intertwined with masculinity. And, and part of that came, the shift to the superhero costumes came partially from me being a parent of small children at the time. I think my daughter was around eight when I started those and my son was, you know, like three or four. And so, you know, my daughter was doing the things that you should do at eight or nine or whatever it was. She was riding her bike to the park and she was going to see friends. But it was also 2003 and it was uh, not long after 9-11 and I was living in Arizona where it seemed like everybody was just nuts about, you know, people crossing the border to try and kill us and where the, the next terrorist is going to come in from Mexico and all this stuff. And it's like, you guys got to just settle down, but you're making me paranoid because you're always talking about bullies and rapists and terrorists. And it's like, (laughs) so who, who takes care of you? Who, who protects you? And the superhero thing, because that had been part of the work sort of came in and it really became a way for me to explore my own personal um, feelings about taking care of my children and the the more public um, mythical ideas about who is it that takes care of us as a culture and protects us and what does that mean? Um, because, you know, like talking about Batman, sure, he saves people. He also imposes his interpretation of the law and I'm not really comfortable with lots of people's interpretations of the law all the time. (laughs) This especially uh, rings
0: true now, but yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's great how that work can come back around and come back around and new interpretations can come up and it's like, Oh yeah. It's going to be
0: on an endless loop. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that, you know, that was really what that was about for me. The, the interesting thing about that work was that it, it led me in other directions. So the, the superhero costumes on a series of photographs of me in costume in different kinds of situations that suggested how the hero functioned, and in prints um, that were made from digital photographs that also did the same thing but looked more like a comic book world, and videos and performances in live um, venues. So it was really a great way to explore fully those different ideas about how do we how do we protect people and how do we perform those expectations of gender and what does that actually mean?
0: And would you say that that work really got you more publicity than some of your previous work or was that just something, because I know I personally, that came up on my radar because I think the knitting world attached to it, Yeah, they really glommed on and I saw it on several, peer on several places on the internet, um, but do you feel like that was something that really got attention?
1: Yeah, I feel like that was a real moment. There was a a moment, um, mostly on the West Coast, because that's where I was living when I started the embroidered comic book stuff. And that got some attention there, but it didn't really move into the the sort of broader world. And uh, the costumes, though, yeah, that sort of combination of... Um, the popularity of knitting and um, stitch and bitch stuff and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing and then right. and yarn bombing with um, a guy making costumes and the, the rise of knit cave to attention in the general public and sort of that being a uh, an interest of people to see costumed bodies. Um, really sort of all hit it once. And it was one of those like accidents of the world. It was just like, holy cow, I just wasn't the one to make these things and, and sort of giggle at myself. <laughs> this is, this is great.
0: I think the internet, probably the timing of that too, the internet was, I mean, a lot of things were getting spread on the internet where your previous work, there weren't as many people on there blogging and yeah, being to be like, Hey, check this out. And, and it yeah. gets shared so easily now. And so that the timing seemed like that was the perfect lineup of, just the knitting craze and then the internet, people blogging, wanting to have content. And, hey, did you see this? And yeah, cause I saw it pop up all over. And I, I, so that's, so that's really cool. I mean, and how many costumes did you end up making?
1: I think around 50. <laughs> wow. That's
0: a lot. Cause how many days would it take you to, to work on just one?
1: Uh, well they took around six to eight weeks, sometimes longer if they, they were bigger then human size. So yeah, it was, I I mean, I worked on those for about 10 years uh, on and off along with the prints and the other stuff. So there was lots of time to make costumes.
0: How many of those do you still own?
1: Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but most of them.
0: (laughs) Okay. But some of them are in collections. So it sounds like.
1: Yep. Yeah. There's um, several that are in museum collections and a few in private collections.
0: That's pretty cool. That's really cool. Because something that you created just, as you said, just kind of, you know, laugh at yourself a little bit. Um, (laughs) I mean, is the fact that it's, these are collectibles, you know, people are and it's right up there with these paintings that people are are buying. And so, and that I think lends, you know, lends itself as a nice segue into the whole discussion of fiber art as art. And uh, because a lot of times people like, I think the fiber part throws people. They're like, okay, well, there's regular art. And then there's fiber art and I'm just like, wait a second, wait a second. You know, it's all art, but we all, I mean, there's a lot of debate out there. At one point, does craft something like knitting cross over into art? Do you have to be a, an, have an MFA to, to use it that way? Do you have to, um, and these are just the, the criticisms that I've heard through. I, I know the, you know, I have my own viewpoints on, on these questions, but, um, you know, it's a really interesting discussion and I'm sure you've heard so much about this being that you're a prominent male fi- fiber artist who's been out there in the world creating work, um, so what is your perspective on that, and how have things changed from when you started as a you know in the fiber art world to where you are now? Are we going in a good direction? Does it feel like you're getting um, fiber art gets more respect now than it used to
1: because I was educated in the Midwest uh, and that 's where fiber actually, as I understand it really that in the West coast is where it really came to be a prominent and viable form of investigation in contemporary art in the seventies, sixties and seventies in particular, that I didn't feel, I mean, certainly in school. There were people making jokes about the fiber department versus the painting department versus sculpture. You know, there were, there were certain behaviors attached to each of those departments. Um, but I never felt like the greater art world, um, was going to hinder me because of that choice. Now, practically speaking, of course, there's all sorts of things about, um, Oh, that's a weaving. It's not a painting, or that's a, an acrylic costume instead of a sculpture of a figure. I don't know what to do with that. There, there are certain limitations on collectors and museums and curators where they're unfamiliar with something. So it limits your possibilities. But I think, along with like the luck of knitting hitting it when i started making the costumes curators and art historians have changed the way they think about things from when say i was an undergrad till now and there's much more interest in the politics of the everyday i guess is a way to put it and Mm -hmm. the materials and and things that go along with that uh, like knitting and like textiles that uh, has allowed my career to grow as I have matured um, and so I don't feel like there's been lots of limits. There's certainly uh, places like New York City that <laughs> <laughs> um, understand those kinds of things differently and and have their own personality about what they think art is that means that I you know just haven't found the place there um, part of it. I think is less for me about fiber and more about the fact that I make things and they change pretty regularly. We make things that are not necessarily standard, easy commodities to purchase. You can, you know, say all you want about how cool a costume is, but <laughs> when somebody's gotta hang it in their house, it's a big weird thing, right? There. Right. And
0: it's yeah, you can't really um call up your local like uh you know, yeah. people who install you know, can sell you a frame and a hanging system for paintings. There really isn't. Yeah, I need one of those for a knitted costume. Uh, yeah, I want to make sure that <laughs> exactly. it doesn't stretch out. So it's going to need support. Yeah. Like, yeah, people are. What do you mean? Like, I
1: can't put it in the sunlight. Oh, know <laughs> Right,
0: right. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to yeah. fade on one side. Yeah, it's going to. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, so I you know on the one hand I feel like if you if you engage in the kind of discussion that the art galleries in in the world and in your particular area engage in, then it doesn't really matter what how you make what you make. It's just a matter of finding the right people to support what you do. Um, Now, it's a lot more complicated than that because there are some old biases, and one of them is that fiber is predominantly seen as linked with um, the feminine and women and um, that experience. And I don't particularly think that's a problem, obviously, and that's not, you know, hooray me, that's just... A set of experiences and a set of cultural expectations that stretches way back to the Victorian era in Western culture, and it's it's a limit because we've got this myth that artists are angsty, edgy men who drive motorcycles and wear leather jackets and you know do the Jackson Pollock thing, and that's changing, luckily too. The, the Gorilla Girls and feminism and Me Too and uh, LGBTQ studies and all that is, is making things much more open. And I think that helps fields like fiber that that are associated with people that aren't necessarily the ones that seem like the, the artistic genius. So, you know, part of it then again would be that I'm um, a man, so certain expectations i could get around them in some ways i guess or um, people didn't give me a hard time the same way and and i just think at at the right time i found people that were supportive of what i wanted to do so it wasn't a big problem
0: yeah and i do you think that be given the fact that you were one of very few men in the programs you were in Do you think that helped you kind of get a leg up in a way because, you know, women are in a fiber program. No one's going to be like, oh, my gosh, can you believe all these women in this class? Because that's what they're used to. I mean, that's traditionally what happens. So in a way, I I find that if you're in a knitting shop and a guy walks in and then he he knows what he – It really quiet. Yeah. Well, and then (laughs) – oh, yeah, you know. You know. But a lot of the women will take notice of this and be like, okay, so is he buying something for – a woman that he knows like is he here to get a gift card or does he actually know what he's doing and um i know there was a guy who i wrote about locally who would wear a leather jacket he drove rode a motorcycle and he'd go to the local (laughs) knit shop and the women would just be like what is he doing here like what's going on um is he gonna hold the place up like what's gonna happen here um and he was he's a big time knitter i mean he he loves knitting
1: and Uh um
0: and I ended up doing a second story because he met and fell in love with a, a knitter, another knitter in town,
1: which <laughs> is really
0: cool. Yeah, it was really cool, you know. So um, there's this couple, you know, a man and a woman who are both knitters and um, it's, you know, really kind of cool story. But it's but it's one of those deals where people had an expectation that he couldn't possibly be there to buy yarn for himself, right? Because right? people were like, he's a guy on a motorcycle, Guys on motorcycles yeah, nice. don't knit, and there are plenty of guys on motorcycles who knit. But so, if you ha- have, if you had interesting discussions with women, like female students and maybe female colleagues, about um, you know, if you guys both put out work that's maybe be the same sub- subject matter, the same um, you know, both textile work, the re- is it your response different? Do you think you get more attention because you're a man?
1: Um. Not always, but I've certainly had conversations with colleagues and and students um, where, you know, somebody had said something like, "Wow, if a man does that, it's really edgy and and more political." And it's like, you know, um, they they would get really bent out of shape about that, <laughs> rightfully so, because I don't, you know, that's just that's basing something on an old. Idea of our society that doesn't right. necessarily have to go along with how things actually are, um, and I, you know, it, it one in one way I try to be really aware of the advantages that genetics and and birth have given me, and on the other hand, try to also say you know there's there's still a part of this becomes choice and becomes me sort of being aware and investigating.
0: I am c- curious about your. How you balance creating your own work, having time for your own studio practice, and then also dedicating and and splitting your time between that and and mentoring students
1: by setting good boundaries and being really organized <laughs> to be <laughs> you know absolutely blunt. also it really is about here, especially it's about modeling a kind of um, way of working. so my studio is near my students' studios at Cranbrook, and that means... When I'm not teaching, uh, they walk by and see me at work in my studio, and uh, we have a discussion at the beginning of the school year about, you know, this is how we behave, being professional, we're doing this, we're doing that. If Mark's door is shut, don't knock on it and expect him to run right out, because that probably means he's working uh, (laughs) and needs to get work done, Uh, and You know, I just try to be cognizant of the fact that the students deserve a certain amount of time and I deserve a certain amount of time because if I don't work in the studio, I probably can't teach them effectively.
0: Yeah. And that I was going to ask you if if your studio is on campus. And do you like having (laughs) it on campus? I mean, are there ever times when you're like, "Wow, wow, I think I maybe should move off campus, but or does that work well for you?
1: it works well during the school year. I do have a studio off campus too. So like I spend the weekdays for sure in my studio at school during the school year, and then sometimes a weekend day. Um, But I might also have work going on at the studio at home so that I can work there and and be in a different kind of space. And uh, for a while, just be closer to my son and my daughter so that, um, you know, I could make sure everything was was under control (laughs) right
0: well it's nice to be able to like you know just run into like to the other part of the house um so do you have the studio right in your house
1: yeah it's over the garage and it's pretty great itself but
0: (laughs) yeah well for those at home who are trying to imagine what mark's studio looks like like can you describe what what are your staples like what do you have to have in your studio space like what are your go-to Tools. Um
1: so my home studio has always just had a table in it and a good chair and um sometimes a second table it depended on what i was working on um one of the tables might be for you know yarn and thread and fabric and stuff and the other one for the computer my studio usually also has a comfy chair in addition to a regular like office chair uh, particularly when I was knitting, I needed something that wasn't sort of, you know, standard hardcore dinner table kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about it. That's what I need. Um, storage is helpful because there's more pieces that need to be kept someplace than there are shows usually. <laughs> and so right. there needs to be storage, a closet or a cabinet or something. And then usually some bookshelves with lots of art books that I'm still buying uh, and, and that kind of thing uh, the home studio now also has uh, bass guitar electric guitar and drums in it because I I spend some time each week playing in a, a band here in Detroit
0: oh nice what's your band called
1: it's called sold only as curio
0: <laughs> okay yeah. and what kind of music <laughs> do you play
1: yeah, um, we play a very eclectic mix of original songs that are um, inspired by funk and metal and dance music and um, Eastern European, usually Estonian or Latvian kinds of rhythmic structures. So it's, it's a pretty unusual. Yeah, it's very unique. band. Are you in the uh, band with,
0: with, you play bass and, and are you in the band yeah. with other artists or these musicians that you've met along the way?
1: They're all professional musicians. I'm, I'm the, the visual artist of the crew, and they've been playing music much longer than I have. There's a banjo player, a fiddle player, and a guitar player. Uh, and they moved to Detroit from Portland, Oregon, a couple of years ago. And then a drummer who's, um, who's from the Detroit area and has been playing drums for a long time.
0: So, how did you end up in this band? <laughs>
1: Uh, simple answer is a Craigslist ad and an audition um, the The more complicated answer is that I started playing guitar about ten years ago. Uh, I was taking lessons i 'd always wanted to learn to play guitar and Never could really get myself to figure it out, and so I started taking some <laughs> lessons. And the the school that I was going to was mostly for kids, but they had this adult program. And what they tried to do was the adults they'd put them all together as a group and say, "You're a band," and then. We, you would play shows every now and again. And I remember looking at my teacher being like, there is no reason on earth that anybody should put a microphone and an amplifier to what I do. Um, this is not good. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there was something... There, and there still is. This is probably what keeps me going with it. Is there's something so entirely different and compelling about working with a group of people to to make something oh, happen? Oh yeah, yeah. That's not at all what I do in my studio. My studio is very solitary, and so I can be. And it's sort of the best of both worlds. I can go home and practice in the evenings on whatever we're going to play, and you know, prepare myself. And then go to rehearsal or go to the show, and then it's something different. It's this amazing blending of these five people that uh, are all trying to do something, but they, they have different parts to play. And, and it's really, really compelling and kind of fulfilling in that way.
0: So you guys play in any gigs around Detroit? You guys play a lot, uh, do a lot of performances?
1: We sort of come and go. We played a gig on Saturday and now we'll be on hiatus for a few months because the the main trio, the banjo player, fiddle player and guitar player are going off to Europe oh, for okay. 2 months. And so we're just going to, you know, do whatever. I've I've um another drummer that I know and I have been talking about starting something together and we haven't really gotten past saying, "Yeah, that would be a great idea. Yeah, we could do this." Uh, So maybe that'll happen in this interlude and I'll start a second band or something with him.
0: And pretty soon you'll you'll tell your wife that you're in five bands.
1: Well, (laughs) yeah. I I did joke for a while that the band was my retirement plan from teaching, (laughs) but that would really not be a good financial move right now.
0: (laughs) So do your students know that you're in a band? Like do they go to your shows? Oh, yeah.
1: They come to the shows. Some of them come to the shows.
0: That's Um, great.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy.
0: <laughs> is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share?
1: It turns out my new work is going to be at Grand Rapids Art Museum for Art Prize.
0: Nice. I was just going to ask you if you were going to be in so, Art Prize. Is this your first Art Prize, or have you been in other Art Prize? This
1: is my first Art Prize experience, and it came about because I sent them a catalog from a show I just had in January in Detroit, and he called me and was like, "Hey." You want a show in September? Like, okay.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, this is a Grand Rapids Art Museum. Yep. That's the best venue, really, that you can get for Art Prize. It's really, really good. So um they usually yeah. have a lot of top contenders. So what work will you be showing during Art
1: Prize? I'm gonna show um, four of the, the newer mending pieces. So there'll be two pieces on muslin that are about three feet by six feet um, in dimension. And then another one that's wool houndstooth with um, mending and embroidery on it, and a shirt piece that uh, is a blue corduroy shirt that hangs from the the back tail and has mending and embroidery on it.
0: It looks like there's some kind of weaving in a way, like the stitching, you're replicating the pattern and kind of weaving the the pattern of the fabric, like little snippets of fabric, outside the border
1: of that fabric? Well, what I'm doing is cutting holes in the fabric, and then I am filling in the hole with colonial mending techniques where you would weave that hole with presumably something that matched it if you were actually repairing a Mm -hmm. piece of cloth that you were trying to save. Uh, But if you know about darning samplers or mending samplers, it was samplers that you would cut these holes and then make different kinds of fabric inside of them to show the different skills you had. And so sometimes I'm close to recreating or I'm kind of splicing together two different fabrics that seem similar. And other times it's completely something else. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's what's going well, on
0: Well, it's there. fascinating. And I think it's really interesting to see the um, mending and the exploration of, you know, making the fabric, just changing it completely with all that stitching. But then mm. also you're kind of falling back on your weaving skills, too. Yeah which is really interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I, weaving, uh, I'm sorry, uh, mending is huge now. And are you surprised by that, that it's so huge and so hip to do? Um, Cause I know, obviously you've been stitching and embroidering and, and for, you know, throughout your career, but are you surprised to see it kind of at a real high point now? Or
1: I feel like I, I sort of stepped into something without knowing it was happening.
0: <laughs> so your timing is just fantastic.
1: Yeah, or I'm blissfully, you know, just the luckiest person on earth. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's just like it's all over the place, and that's that's great. Um, it's kind of funny because, like, people really, really technically informed and proficient textile people have come to some of my shows and seen this new work, and I've had to explain to them how it's made, and I look at them and I think, I'm not doing anything particularly tricky here, but the way it's happening, it's, it, it's just very difficult to read in certain ways. And, and it's, it's interesting to see that kind of thing within the context of all this talk about mending and, and weaving even, and, and how they're, they're kind of more visible right now. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you're hitting the jackpot, the combination of weaving and mending, um, hey yeah. <laughs> if you have a, if you want Whatever to sell me one of your if, if you want to sell me one of your crystal balls, I think I'd really like to <laughs> <laughs> to see what's next and start working on you know macrame, you know, in, with a, a side of in, uh, embroidery. I don't know what it's going to be, but uh, how long have you been working though, on these pieces? You've been doing the embroidery pieces for a while now, like this latest body of work.
1: How long? Yeah, have, I started. Like 2014 on those in the beginning, and then really 2015 is when they they first really got going, and when I started showing them. And
0: now it's perfect timing. Let's hope so. Yeah, no, I think well, I okay, uh, Good luck with Art Prize. I think you'll have. Thank you. Uh, it'll be a good experience. Have you gone to Art Prize before?
1: Um, I should probably not confess this but no i haven't been okay. to art Pride before. <laughs> no there are a
0: lot of people in the art world who have not been there before and it's it's okay it's an experience um you'll want to eat your Wheaties before you show up because it is there's so much art it's almost it's in torturous in one respect where there is so much to see in yeah. a compressed amount of time and it's i think the most the only you know frustrating thing is that you can't it's you just feel like you can't see everything and that's frustrating when it's all there um but the right downtown right by the art museum. There are several, uh, tons of venues. You'll see thousands of people on the street. And it's just incredible to see all these people enjoying art. Um, some people have art backgrounds. Some people have no art background. But people are just really enjoying the visual sure. feast that happens during this event. So I think you'll have a great time. Um, last question I'm going to ask you is, uh, do you have any words of advice for uh, people who are thinking about pursuing a fiber art Degree, And I know you, you kind of joked earlier that oh. some people say don't do it, um, you know, but uh, you know, obviously you're, you're working in the field and I'm not allowed to tell people not to be journalists either. You know, I mean, I'm obviously <laughs> feeling that it's very important and you should be a journalist. Um, so um, but any any advice for people that might think, you know, I think I want to pursue this. Um, what I don't know if there's anything that you think would be helpful to help them make that decision about whether or not they should go full blast in it.
1: I'm not sure this will be specific to fiber. I think it sort of goes with everything. But if you're feeling drawn to do something, then you should do it. And you should be prepared to pull out all the stops and do what you have to do, which sounds, you know, sort of generic and basic. But I think back on what it took me to get to what I'm doing now. And part of it was just daily practice of going and doing things as you know, seeing the work and making the work and thinking about the work and then me- meeting the other people around that felt as passionately as I did about what I was doing, about what they were doing. And I think that's what you got to do. You've got to put in the time and you've got to find the people that are also putting in the time and surround yourself with that kind of energy and then just go forward.
0: some advice. Yeah, because if you're thinking, man, I don't think I really want to risk anything to pursue something that's probably not the thing you should be pursuing then. Yeah, you know, if, you're not, yeah. if it's, you know, you're not willing to risk it. So, um, right. well, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, I feel like sure. you're like, wow, this is time I can't get back. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm hopefully,
0: hopefully you had a good time. Um, but yeah. I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. A special thanks to Mark for being such an excellent guest. This was such a fun interview to do, and the conversation went so smoothly, at least from my perspective. Hopefully, Mark feels the same way. Um, But he is a great storyteller. He tells the story of his work so uh, smoothly and in an entertaining way. It was just really a joy to talk to him. I hope you experienced that same kind of response at home, and I hope you got a lot of stitching done during this episode. If you would like to hear more or learn more about Mark, uh, I have links to his website over at craftsanity.com. So you can head over there and I'll post his social media links and his website and all that. Um, also, if you're going to be in Grand Rapids, Michigan for art Prize, which is coming up this fall, uh, he is going to be exhibiting at one of the very best venues at the Grand Rapids art museum. So you can look forward to that. I will also put the link to art Prize, so you can Check out his work and all the other artists that are going to be there. And um, and then if you still can't get enough, if you're like, wow, I listened to this podcast and I'm really excited, um, I'll also link to Cranbrook so you can check out their website. And um, so I won't be the only one going there every six months and thinking, hmm, of course I'm not the only one. Um, <laughs> they have plenty of students, but it's a fun website to check out. Uh, I will also uh, just kind of throw out there, this isn't happening until... The spring of 2019, but I have invited Mark to come and speak to the Weavers Guild here in Grand Rapids. It's called the Woodland Weavers and Spinners Guild, and I am the president this year. My term kind of officially begins with our meeting schedule in September and um, kind of wrapping up the planning for all the programming for next year. So, that will be really fun. So if you're interested in that, if you live in Michigan and you're interested in hearing about that, you can email me, Jennifer at craftsanity.com and I'll give you the specs for that. Uh, we don't have unlimited seating, and our guild is very, very large. And I know how popular Mark is, so I'm not going to put a blanket invite out there. But if you're local and you're interested in, in showing up, um, I'd love to bring some special guests that evening. So, um, So get in touch if you're interested. Once again, thanks, Mark, for a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And I hope all of you folks got inspired and are just pumped up to start mending things and um, embellishing things and having a great time with your stitching. I have another podcast recorded, and it's been a really, really busy summer, which is good and kind of bad that it's speeding along so quickly. I wish I could slow down time slightly, but I will be back with another episode very soon. Oh, my goodness. I just signed off before inviting you folks to the Michigan Fiber Festival, which is coming up in August. The 17th through the 19th, I will be vending at this festival, and it is really fun. It's at the Allegan County Fairgrounds, and uh, it'll be my second year as a vendor, so I have a lot of fun demonstrating how to weave on the Craft Sanity loom collection that ranges from a tiny pocket loom that you can make tapestries on on the go to, um, and actually there might be some tinier looms in that um, if I get everything done that I want to try to do before before the event happens, we'll see. Now that I'm putting it out there, it puts a little more pressure on me to actually do this. I'll also have um, large blanket looms. I'll probably have the behemoth six foot by six foot loom out there, uh, rug looms and placemat looms and looms to make cowls and scarves, hats, pot holders. of course, that's my that's where it all started with the potholder looms. And probably some other looms that I'm forgetting, uh, bracelet, tapestry, Circular looms, triangle looms for making banners, those little bunting banner things to say, hey, happy birthday, or celebrating other events. There'll be hexagon looms, just all kinds. This is starting to sound like a ridiculous commercial, and I really don't mean for it to be like that, but I get really excited about teaching people how to weave and meeting all of you. So if any of you are listening, even if you're not interested in a loom, you might be like, I'm a swimmer. I don't care about weaving. That's fine. Uh, stop on by and say hello. I'd love to um hear from people who listen to this show and meet you and who knows you might be on the next episode you know you never know so be careful if you step in my booth i can't promise you that i won't rope you into a long-winded conversation um usually i do not have time to do an interview while i'm bending simultaneously believe me if i could figure out how to do that i would so do it um But I am really excited to um, just meet you folks. And even if you are like, you know what, I don't really want to talk to this crazy lady. um, You don't have to talk to me. Um, Just go ahead and check out the show and uh, get to meet some of the other vendors. And, you know, you can shop for wool and see sheep and llama and alpaca and all these great animals that are so cute. Uh, I almost buy an angora rabbit every single year. It's like the same Kind of struggle where I see them, they're so cute, and then I'm like, oh, but I can't do it. I don't have the, the right setup. Um, so I walk away every year. Every year it gets harder. Um, <laughs> but and it's gonna be even harder this year because I'm gonna be in the same building, and I should officially know the name of the building. But it's the newest barn, on the fairgrounds, and um, I will be vending there. And the they keep the, the bunnies and some of the livestock are in the back half. But I have to remember I live in the suburbs. I'm not really set up for this. So maybe my farm dream will become a reality at some point. Probably won't be this year. That's all right. The farm dream is fun enough. And I've already made you forget that I was just trying to invite you to the Michigan Fiber Festival. Once again, the dates for that are the 17th, 18th, and 19th of August. And yeah, look for the Craft Sanity booth. You'll probably hear me talking loudly um, and <laughs> enthusiastically to people about looms. Yeah, and I hope you stop by. I just want to invite you all because I'm not doing a ton of shows. Um, I'll probably do a couple other shows with the Weavers Guild, but I'm not really looking to travel really far um, to do shows, just because it's kind of hard with the teaching schedule and all that. With that said, I need to go buy some supplies to make some more looms, so I'm ready for the show. (laughs) You should see my hair, guys. It's incredible. All right, (laughs) I'm gonna pull myself together and get on with my day, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see some of you out there. In the meantime, craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate $1
1: a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsanity.etsy.com. Same time next week will be craft.